Are you living the crazy life of a sports parent? This is Sports Parenthood, the podcast packed with cool conversations with sports people, coaches and professionals for rookie sports parents just like you. You'll hear nuggets of gold in every episode with your hosts, fellow sports parents, John and Tiffany Bonacera. We love our sporting heroes in Australia. We celebrate them, we admire them, we want to hear their stories. But what happens when the dream doesn't go to plan? Worse still, what happens when a sporting culture that normalises abuse leaves a long-lasting legacy on your life and the life of countless others? When the lines between toughening the athlete coaching practices and abuse become blurred? In this week's episode of Sports Parenthood, we go behind the scenes to see how and why things can go terribly wrong and what sports parents need to know to understand abuse and identify the signs. Tiffany spoke with Dr. Jennifer McMahon. Jennifer was an Australian swimming gold and silver medalist from the 1990 Commonwealth Games in Auckland. She shares her deeply personal story of being on top of the world one minute and how her dream came crashing down the next and how she's turned her painful experiences into a positive. This year, Jen received an OAM for her research into helping protect athletes from abuse. Her story started like so many others, a love of sport. Just before we begin, this episode is not for little people's ears. There wasn't a day when my parents had to make me go training because I really loved it and wanted to go. But I did train a lot from a young age, so I was probably doing 11 sessions per week, which means morning and night sessions by the age of 11. Wow. Yeah, I progressed through the sport. Um, So through all of the levels, so starting, you know, with state, the national age, and then I actually made my first Australian team, which was the Auckland Commonwealth Games at the age of 15. At the Commonwealth Games, I won a gold and silver medal. So that was my first Australian team, first international meet, and I picked up a gold and a silver. Yeah, and after the Commonwealth Games, I travelled through Europe with a small Australian team. That was just immediately after. So, and I competed, it was like the World Cup circuit, and it was held in Germany, Sweden, and Italy. And I won numerous international medals at each of those. And I'd have to say at that point, I was on top of the world Mm. in my career. I was winning international medals every time I swam. I felt strong, powerful. I wasn't scared to take on the best in the world because I really believed that I could smash them in the water. I was getting lots of attention also at that point from Mm. coaches and other swimmers, both nationally and internationally. Mm. So it was like suddenly people were interested in me and I really liked the attention and I liked the acknowledgement of my hard work and achievements. Mm -hmm. At the age of 16, I represented Australia at the World Championships in Perth. I competed in the 4x200 freestyle relay, finaled, and we finished fourth in the world. And I was ranked 13th in the world for my individual 200 freestyle. Mm -hmm. At that time, my parents saw that achievement as a failure because it was assumed that I would medal at the World Championships like I'd done at the Commonwealth Games. I was even disappointed with myself because I expected more. And that was what I was going to ask. What was your reflection on that? I had no idea how tough the World Championships was going to be in terms of competition. So after the World Championships, the year after, I had a year before the Olympic trials. So what year are we up to now, Jen, if you could recap? 
Between 91 World Championships and 92 Olympics. Okay, perfect. So after the World Champs, all I lived and breathed was making the Olympic team for the Barcelona Olympics. Yes. It's all I wanted in life. Like I was only between 16 and 17, but, you know, I really had a taste of making the Australian team and doing well. Every night I remember visualising climbing the stairs, like the Qantas plane stairs that would be taking me to Barcelona. Wow. And I also visualised walking into the stadium for the opening ceremony. So that's like what really helped me get through that fatigue and tiredness when like I was training 80 to 90 kilometres a week at that point. And that is actually unbelievable. And it is a lot of work. And, and I, th- I feel few people would understand what that feels like. Yeah. So I worked so hard to make that team. And I was just 17 years of age when the Olympic trials started and I was in really good shape fitness-wise. But the Barcelona Olympics was not to be for me. I actually finished third in the 200 freestyle Olympic trials. Usually that would be enough to make the Australian Olympic team as a member of the 4x200 freestyle relay team. Yes. But at the 1990 Olympics, the 4x200 freestyle relay was only an Olympic event for men and not for women. Oh, my goodness. So... At that point in my life, my whole world, as I knew it then, came crashing like crashing down around me. I walked away from the sport because I felt like I was a failure and the sport let me walk away. So not one coach or teammate reached out to me. I just left and they let me. So I was only 17, but I was ranked number 12 in the world in the tournament freestyle. And when I think back to that now, like where I am now, I think it's crazy. I was so young and had so much potential, but in the eyes of those involved in elite swimming, it was not enough. So I was perceived, I felt like I was perceived as a has-been. I don't know if they they felt I was a has-been because I never know, but they did let me go and no one reached out. So... And I have to say that for the four years that followed those Olympic trials, they were the deepest and darkest of my life. But this is when I had to overcome depression and also various addictions in my life. Now, looking back, and you did mention that, you know, had there been some sort of intervention, do you think things would have worked out differently? And perhaps now with a bit of hindsight, what kind of intervention, if you've thought about that, may have made things a little bit different? Well, just supporting me through Mm. not letting me give up and saying that I've got the whole world ahead of me and working out a plan for the next four years. So you mentioned that the coaches didn't reach out, Jen. What role did your parents play in that sort of period of time? So when I look now back at what my parents did for me during my swimming career and I had no understanding or realisation at the time, but there's no way I could have achieved what I did in the sport without them. They drove me to 11 sessions per week. They drove me to and sat with me at every swim meet, held every weekend over the summer. They weren't wealthy by any means, but they funded physios, dietitians, coaching fees, travelling fees to competitions that were held interstate and intrastate. Mm. Now, and now as a mum with a child that swims, the magnitude of what they gave up has only hit me. And they had a commitment to me and my athletic dreams and it was incredible and unwavering in terms of their financial support and their time given up to support me. However, what was happening behind the scenes at home was a little different. I had incredible pressure placed on me as a member of the Australian swimming team. As a member of that Australian swimming team, coaches and team managers expected me to achieve and maintain a certain body weight achieve and maintain a certain skin fold measurement 
basically they wanted me to be like a fatless boy-like physique and I was expected to perform every time I trained and raced. So my mum, in what she thought was in my best interest, carried those expectations and practices enforced on me in the Australian team to our home environment. I can Mm. see that mum was just totally invested in helping me to achieve my dreams and just took up the practices of the perceived experts, those being the Australian team coaches and managers, and she brought them into our home life as she thought it would be the best way to help me achieve. And in this way, I feel she became an overseer of the swimming culture. But this meant that like Australian team coaches and managers, she would monitor what I consumed at mealtimes, as in she'd watch everything I put in my mouth. So if I consumed something extra or something that wasn't deemed healthy, I'd cop it from her. And when I talk about this now, my throat tightens and I can remember the same tightening feeling as a 16-year-old girl when I was eating at mealtimes and my mum was watching me and also Australian team coaches and managers were watching me. But as a member of the Australian swimming team, I was weighed daily at the World Mm. Championships. I remember getting in trouble for putting on weight for three consecutive days. At at home, it was no different. So my mum would visit dietitian appointments with me where I'd be weighed and if I put on weight, I'd cop it. And what do you mean when you say cop it, Jen, would you be able to sort of explain that a little bit? I thought that you might ask that and I had a big think about it and I don't wish to expand on what copying it entails out of respect for my parents who are still alive and I love dearly but it wasn't nice and it was emotionally and physically damaging for me but I just want to reiterate that my parents invested so much so when I didn't achieve at swim meets in terms of a personal best or expectations placed on me by coaches they were disappointed and the way they acted that out you know wasn't nice for me. Beyond your parents actually it sounds like it was the sporting culture in general. There was no escaping for pressure escaping the pressure for me so I was in a high pressure environment environment as a member of the Australian team and I was also in a high pressure environment at home and as a result, I became resentful towards my mum for a long time after I finished swimming. We actually didn't talk at all for a couple of years, not at Christmas, not at my birthday. But, you know, I now realise that she was just doing what the swimming culture enforced on me. Mm-hmm. But what I really wanted and needed from her was unconditional love, a home environment, which wasn't swimming focused and praise for what I was doing. It, it sounds like a lot to take on for someone who is 17 years old how do you reflect on your sporting achievements yeah so if I reflect on my physical achievements I see unfulfilled potential I think you just mentioned that as well like I was 17 I was ranked number 12 in the world if I reflect back on my achievements emotionally I'd have to say that swimming for me was equal part emotionally invigorating and equal part emotionally devastating Some of the emotional legacy of that time and being a member of the Australian Swimming Team still lingers with me today. You know, having a think about that and reflecting on those sporting achievements, tell us what led you to pursue your research. So after I missed Olympic qualification, I was 17 and I had just finished grade 12. I had failed all of my subjects in my year 12 certificate, except for health and physical education. And this for me resulted in no opportunity to do further education. I had no experience in anything other than swimming and that because that had been my entire life up until that point because I was training six hours a day, six days a week. Absolutely. And after the missing the Olympic te- team, 
My parents were insistent that I find a job and start contributing to the household. I don't blame them really for insisting this when they had been forking out so much financially for so long to help me to achieve my dreams. After the biggest athletic disappointment of my life, you know, and I had failed in Mm. my education at school and I had no other options, I turned to the only thing I could and my coach actually gave me a job teaching kids to swim for a few hours per week. It was a pretty low point though at that time in my life as I'd gone from being wanted and acknowledged as part of the strain swimming just 10 months earlier to being a failed swimmer, failing at school and failing to find a job other than a few hours per week teaching swimming. And this really put me into a downward spiral. My casual job teaching wasn't enough to sustain me financially as I ended up moving out of home because my home life had become unbearable. And at that point, I became estranged from my parents for a number of years. So I found myself in a Centrelink line looking for extra work and trying to get some financial assistance. So it was like one moment I was one of the best swimmers in the world and had the world at my feet. And the next moment I was handing over the white unemployment form to the staff at Centrelink begging for work. Mm -hmm. And I also didn't realise at that time, because it was always seen as toughening the athlete to get the most out of them competitively, but I was dealing with the toughening the athlete practices that I was subjected to. Some might say that I was broken. I certainly felt broken. I became ashamed to show my face in public and therefore became reclusive. I was so poor. I remember one day having no food in the cupboard, less than a dollar in my wallet. And I remember buying a 30 cent cone from McDonald's for dinner. I think they're more than 30 cents now, but they were 30 cents. I tried to be proactive with jobs because I was not having any luck with Centrelink. So I delivered my resume to businesses in the hope that I'd find work that way. And, you know, one Mm -hmm. night when I had less than $2 in my bank account, account, a business owner actually rang me and said that they just read my resume. And I can Mm -hmm. remember my heart became filled with hope. However, my heart soon got crushed when he said, I don't have any jobs, but I just wanted to meet you and talk to you because of you, you've achieved so much as an athlete. Wow. So the emotional legacy of my swimming career was serious, in particular the mm. toughening the athlete practices that I was subjected to. And the emotional legacy of swimming really like taunted me because I became addicted to sleeping tablets and used alcohol to dull my thoughts at night. I realised I was not right. I realised I needed help. I had many dark years dealing with the aftermath of swimming, much of which I can't expand on all at this time. I also had to scrape money together for a long time to survive. And it was after years of what I referred to being as a bottom dweller, that's my um, interpretation, that I'd had to try education again. I had to try and be proactive in changing my future because I just couldn't keep living that way. It was the most horrible and disappearing feeling to not be able to secure work and to sustain yourself. So I applied to university as an adult entry. This is for like when you're 25 years or over and you can use yes. your life experience to meet university prerequisites. And I actually got into University of Tasmania Bachelor of Arts degree part-time. I have to say that before that point, I had tried because I was living in southeast Queensland that I did try for universities around there, but I got rejection after rejection from them. But UTAS gave me a shot and university was really difficult for me. I obviously learned in a different way to the norm 
And I failed my first ever university assignment. I actually got 20 out of 100. My second assignment okay. wasn't, wasn't much better with 46 out of 100. But I scraped through and I passed that very first subject. I improved by the third assignment with a 51 out of 100. So Yay. I got a pass. But at that point, that was a big win. Yeah, I had a passion for education. I was doing arts, but I had a passion for education as there wasn't, I didn't want other athletes or just kids who weren't athletes to leave school feeling helpless like I did. So I enrolled in Bachelor of Education. I actually got accepted at James Cook University in Cairns. So my little family moved up there and four years later, I graduated with Bachelor of Education. I actually graduated with first class honours, the only student to do so in my year. As part of the honours component of my study, though, I had to conduct research. And this is when I began to look at the short-term and long-term effects of body practices, like daily weigh-ins on swimmers, because I know that it, you know, it was having such an effect on me. So after a short stint teaching in North Queensland, I taught at places like Port Douglas, Dimbula, and also I went up to Bamiga, which is an Aboriginal community in far North Queensland. I had the opportunity to present that honours research at a national education conference and I actually won the postgraduate award for that and I was an undergraduate so at that point someone amazing from University of Tasmania which is the university that gave me the shot with the Bachelor of Arts was in the crowd and they said would you be interested in doing a PhD with us so not long after I was offered a scholarship to do my PhD in education at University of Tasmania so my little family, so his husband, Chris, and two little boys moved all the way from Cairns to Launceston. That's a bit of a change of scenery. It is, isn't it? Weather, particularly. So I dedicated my PhD research to mm. investigating the short and long-term effects of abusive coaching practices on athletes, which I finished successfully in 2010. So for the last 10 years, I've dedicated all of my research to protecting athletes from abuse in sport and how athlete, how abused athletes are left to fend for themselves post-sport and how they can suffer from various addictions like prescription medication addiction, alcohol addiction, sexual addiction, depression, anxiety, eating disorders, the list goes on. I guess having, having a PhD and having that published, have you had people since then reach out to you? A lot of people, a lot of athletes. And not just from swimming? To me. No, not just from swimming. Are you able to touch on some of, I mean, you know, obviously not specific details of the people who you're talking to, but are there any common themes in the stories that they're telling you? Certainly there's an emphasis on body weight across sports and also, you know, in one specific sport, athletes are treated like robots where they're not referred to by names, but numbers where they have a like an SAS elimination type approach where their photos are on the boards and they have to do these physical challenges in the middle of the night with sleep deprivation and then they have to leave the camp if they are last out of the elite group and they have to leave without saying goodbye. Yeah, so like that's an example of some of the things that are going on. <laughs> sport where I guess athletes are treated as an object of performance and there's not a humanistic welfare type approach. Mm. It's confronting for me, but I'm sure it's confronting for so many other people as well. Do you know, Jen, and this is sort of out of my own interest as well, you mentioned that one of your initial research projects was on that 
practice of um, body weight and, and weighing athletes. Do you know if those practices still exist widely today? Of course they do. Yeah. There was just the Nike athlete. She was part of the Nike running program, Mary, and I can't remember her last name. She's just blowing the lid on that that's happening in America. And like I started researching this 10 years ago, so a little bit longer, but you know, people were shocked by it, but she used her platform. She's got quite a bit of following, Mm. but you can, even the media can be somewhat responsible too. Mm. Cause I can remember some of the days when some, some of the swimmers were, and I'm not going to name them because I think it's really terrible that they did this. And it's normally, you know, female swimmers that get this. So they're at Olympics and their bodies under scrutiny and the media will post an unflattering image of a swimmer getting out of a pool mm. and then their their fitness is questioned and or you'll see you'll hear coaches say oh she's in the best shape of her life she's really trimmed down so mm. next time you listen to a coach being interviewed even athletes themselves embody it and practicing really unhealthy practices to themselves you just listen to the interview and you, you'll hear you'll hear them talk about my weight's really down yeah, but when I when I was actually doing my PhD research, looked for research in swimming around where's the research that says being lean means you swim faster or being a certain skin fold measurement. I can remember in my day we had to do seven spots and we had to be under 70 accumulative skin fold. Mm. So I was looking it up, I couldn't find it. I contacted the Australian Institute of Sport and spoke to the physiologist there and they said while there is research in other sports like weight bearing sports like running Mm. there's no research in swimming the only study that's been done actually says the opposite where having a little bit of body fat helps with buoyancy so it was at odds with what the research was saying this is a socially constructed Mm. practices that doesn't have any science behind it there needs to be a little bit more emphasis on athlete well-being athlete protection um, if we do um, want to get a, the best out of the athlete, because at the moment, and I'll talk about with some of the practices later, but, you know, it sits at odd with sports psychology. The sports psychologist is not saying let's abuse the athletes, let's do these toughening the athlete type approaches, which I just mm. said was occurring in another sport where they're using that SAS, those SAS techniques. So nowhere does it say in sports psychology literature that that's going to enhance sport performance. Earlier this year, you received an Order of Australia medal for your work in protecting athletes from abuse. So in a tweet you posted at the time, and I quote, I would be lying if I said it was easy. I'm still hurting from sport. What can you tell us about the long-term impact on athletes from this abuse? Yeah. Well, I've talked about it a little bit with myself here, but abuse researchers have found, and not just me as an abuse researcher, abuse researchers worldwide, and they're sport abuse researchers, and also abuse researchers just for the general public found the long-term impacts of abuse on recipients, athletes, have been found to include self-harm, eating disorders, alcohol, drug and sexual addiction, anxiety, depression, suicide. Some athletes have even, some athletes have even turned to crime. Mm. So also the same, the same findings apply to general public as well. So personally, I have had an eating disorder and I've been addicted to sleeping tablets and alcohol. I've experienced anxiety and depression. 
this is something that I have to cope with and manage every day, even as a 40-year-old. So the long-term impact of abuse on athletes is troubling, which is why the International Olympic Committee have made it an urgent priority that needs to be addressed. And so how are they doing that, Jen? They're doing lots of safety campaigns, so they're mandating that sporting organisations include abuse education. They're funding research projects around abuse, which I've been lucky enough to win one. So like my project's going to be looking at abuse education with young athletes, adolescent athletes, and also adult elite athletes, and also with coaches in the sports of swimming, of football, and rowing in Canada, the UK, and also Australia. So this has just happened, hasn't it, Jen? Yeah, it's just happened. But like they have been doing this, the International Olympic Committee have been onto this for a while now. So it isn't a new thing and I'm not the only researcher researching this area. There's lots of international researchers. And so how long would a project just out of interest take? So they can all vary. That particular project which I'm doing can take is taking a year. Yeah, there's lots of different ones. Like there's a, a big one that's just come out of Canada and I'll talk mm. about that one in a second. And they interviewed the largest scale study that's ever been done with athletes and they interviewed um, athletes of various levels across various countries, across various sports and just, and they also did retired athletes as well and looked at, you know, who had been subjected to neglect, physical abuse, emotional abuse and sexual abuse. And I'll talk about those statistics in a second, but it's quite shocking actually. So yeah, we did just offline chat about that Canadian research and it did come out with, as you sort of mentioned, some shocking statistics. So how prevalent is abuse in sport today? Many cases of athlete abuse have been reported resulting in federal investigations and subsequent convictions. So like English football, French basketball, Canadian hockey, US gymnastics, US swimming, Swiss gymnastics, the list goes on. So these investigations have shown that athletes at different levels, so children, adolescents, adults, elite, and across sporting contexts, so gymnastics, swimming, athletics, football, are being subjected to multiple forms of abuse, emotional, sexual, and physical. So as I said about that study, study the largest scale study conducted on, um, it was led by Gretchen Kerr in Canada, on abuse that athletes are subjected to came out of Canada. And it was, as I said, it was conducted with athletes internationally, across sports, across levels. And it showed that 75% of athletes have and will experience neglect. 60% of athletes have and will experience emotional harm, while 20% of athletes will experience some sort of, some sort of sexual and physical harm. So what does abuse Absolutely. mean? The inter- yeah, the International Olympic Committee have devi- defined what the different types of abuse and harm might look like. And it's really surprising because some of these practices are really seen as normal toughening athlete practices, but they're actually abusive according to the International Olympic Committee abuse definition. So I've got a couple of, haven't got enough time to go through every single thing, but I've got a couple of examples here. So for instance, emotional abuse could include belittling the athletes, humiliation, shouting, yelling, isolating. So that's one that's happened to me and I didn't swim so well. The coach just ignores you after it threatening, pitting one athlete against the other. So if, like, when you think about that, would we be okay if that happened in a school setting? No. Yeah, it seems to be acceptable in a sports setting. 
because it's perceived as getting the most out of the athlete. But as I said, sports psychology experts disagree with this approach. They say that performance isn't going to follow if that happens. So physical abuse may include hitting, making athletes train while they're injured or sick, coaches giving too much workload to young kids. Sexual abuse involves touching, grooming, sexual innuendos, inappropriate comments. So as I just mentioned earlier, the the effects of abuse are troubling, as you would imagine. There's depression, anxiety, addictions, suicide, eating disorders, leaving the sport. And for what is also troubling is for those athletes who move into coaching roles, it's been found in research that they're actually recycling some of the practices that they were subjected to because they perceive them to be normal and they perceive them to be effective. Something that's starting to be done, it's not being done effectively though. Uh, For instance, like some of the sporting modules that I've looked at, the coaches are being made to take the only focus on sexual abuse, not physical and emotional abuse, which is the two types of abuse which happening most prevalent. They also, some of the modules I've seen, they haven't listed coaches as perpetrators of abuse. And even though that that study found that coaches are um, perpetrators of abuse, the other highest the other like where the other place where abuse happens is through peer-to-peer abuse, so from other athletes. Mm. So speaking about, I guess, toxic and abusive culture in sport, Jen, we talked about this in terms of a, the Netflix documentary Athlete A that you know has has recently come out. So just in a quote from that film, the line between tough coaching and child abuse gets blurred. What are your thoughts on this? I think it's really important that parents firstly protect their kids and recognise that blurring between tough coaching practices and child abuse. So so firstly, it's important for parents to educate themselves, to look at what abuse in sport is and looks like according to the International Olympic Committee definitions and examples, and also to recognise some of the signs or effects of abuse on athletes as because the athletes themselves might not recognise what's happening because... Absolutely. They're young. They don't see it as abusive. They see it as normal. So some of the signs might be depression, not wanting to attend training sessions, weight loss, change in sleeping habits, becoming recluse, change in mood, anxiety. And I think it's important for parents to not fall for mantras from coaches such as trust the process. I've achieved great results with this method. I use this approach to build toughness. The coach may have achieved great results with one or two athletes, but how many others were damaged in the process and what have been the lasting effects of those approaches? Also, parents can seek advice and alternate opinions. Never assume that this way or that approach is the only way. Also, just because a number of coaches use the same approach does not mean it's okay, given the high rates of abuse found to be occurring across sports that I've just discussed. Obviously, it's not okay to be using the same approach that doesn't might not sit comfortably with you. In contrast, like the coaches should be providing challenging training. Of course, you know, it's not easy to get and improve to get to an elite level to perform well, but it should be age, skill and developmentally appropriate sessions mm. that build resilience and toughness in order to develop junior athletes. 
And if a coach finds that they need to threaten, ignore, punish rather than encourage, then that line's getting crossed. Mm. Why do you think abuse in sport is still prevalent? Yep. Firstly, I think it's unequal power relationships between coaches and athletes and also coaches and parents. Mm. Like the coaches are seeing it seen as the bearer of all knowledge and they enforce their approach on the athletes. Another thing is the normalization and recycling of these toughening the athlete approaches. Because they've achieved success in the past and because they're perceived to achieve success. So coaches and parents having an emphasis purely on competitive performance and improvement, it's another thing, always trying to get that added advantage. They're always trying to toughen the athlete to get better because it's perceived, I should say, it's perceived to get better performance. And the athlete having little power of voice in the coaching training process. So like there's a, there's a whole array of things mm. that you can discuss, but I think there's some of the key things of why abuse is still happening. Well, speaking about, I guess, that coach and parent sort of scenario, then what are your thoughts on parents coaching kids' teams? Kids' sporting teams rely heavily mm. on parental involvement, don't they? Absolutely. And, you know, to be honest, without their involvement, kids' sport wouldn't operate as particularly as effectively as it does. We rely on parents to help out. We do. But, like, parents rely heavily on their past experiences in sport to do that coaching. And if they've been exposed to those toughening the athlete approaches, which have come to be seen as normal, they may recycle those approaches without realizing the issues that they're causing for kids and I'm I'm not just saying these are parent coaches so just like the coaches of elite teams education is the key Mm -hmm. and I'm you know it's not parent coach like parent coach it's exactly the same like I feel like education yeah it's gonna break that cycle so my advice for parents and athletes is to make sure that sport's not the only thing in their life Mm. so it's important to keep it in perspective try and keep a healthy balance between life and sport. Persevere because improvement isn't always linear. It means like every time an athlete races or competes, it's not going to be a personal best. And to focus on the things that the athlete does well rather than what they don't do well. Jen, if you had more balance when you were swimming, I mean, 11 sessions you said a week when you were around 11 years of age, do you think things may have played out a little bit differently for you? Well, just even think about me at 17 when I missed the Olympic team. Mm. Well, like, what did I have? I didn't have education. Mm. I didn't spend any time with friends outside of the pool because every my whole life was the people I trained with, like my coach made the Australian Olympic team. I trained with my home coach. I trained with Kieran Perkins and he made the Olympic team. And, like, they were off. They were going off. So, like, I lost those key supporters as well. Yes, I was really on my own and something that totally took over my life I no longer had so I had nothing else to fall back on so yeah it would have been different for me certainly at 17 when I missed the Olympic team if I had a little bit more balance and the same with our home environment if it wasn't so swimming focused and it was a little bit more supportive outside of swimming you know I I could have had a little bit more support then. Jen you did mention your son and perhaps your son is now swimming, has your experience influenced the way that you are sports parenting him? Yeah, obviously, very much so. Firstly, it's experienced it. It's influenced the coach that we've he trains with. Mm-hmm. So he actually trains with Tracy Menzies-Stegbauer. I, I yes. can pick up uh, quite quickly 
from my experiences what sort of coaching practices I like and don't like. Um, she's the perfect balance. She's achieved Olympic success, but she's not going to ruin him mentally to get there. Yeah, there's other coaches that I would like him to swim with, but they're just with elite athletes. Like she's the perfect fit for him. So firstly, yes, it's influenced the type of coach that I want my child to swim with. And I think I've gone the opposite way in that I don't monitor his eating at all. Yeah. And I'm one of those too. Yeah, a lot of chocolate consumed in our house. And, you know, I never talk about the negatives. I always talk about the positives. And, you know, I'm always trying to lift him up as much as possible because it is tough and improvement isn't always linear. And every time he gets in the water, like it might be one good swim out of three. And he, he truly loves the sport. And if he continues to love the sport and can be a lifelong participant in some sort of exercise, then, you know, I'm doing your job and so is Tracy. What piece of advice would you give to sports parents? It's important that we start talking about some of these issues and practices that have been used in the past that aren't in the best interest of athletes. I think it's a real start and I think parents can be really involved in it and they can start to flag some of these practices. The more people that are able to identify it, the more people that speak up about it, it's going to help with stopping these types of practices. So it's it's a start if we if those involved in sport are able to identify those toughening the athlete practices and approaches that are not in the best interest of athletes' well-being in the long term. And by d- discussing these types of things and being able to recognise them, we can work out better ways to protect all those involved in sport. And I'm not just talking about athletes, I'm talking about female coaches or young coaches, parent coaches who um, may be getting influenced strongly to coach a certain way that doesn't sit right. I'm talking about um, team managers might have to turn a blind eye Mm. to things that are happening. So I think the more of us that recognise it, the more of us that have long-term wellbeing of athletes at heart, the more that we can help this situation. It doesn't have to be this way and we can still achieve performance without doing these toughening the athlete practices that come from the 70s. 30 years on and there appears to be a blind spot that still exists in sport with abuse researchers like Jen working hard to drive change. While sporting cultures play a big part, as sports parents, we've got to be in the know about it. We've just had an age-appropriate conversation with our 13-year-old daughter about it at the dinner table. And she had lots of really good questions. I think that's a great thing. We've included a link to the International Olympic Committee Toolkit on Safe Sport in the show notes. Finally, if you haven't listened to our interview with decorated Australian swimming coach Tracy Menzies-Stegbauer, please check it out. That's gold. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Sports Parenthood. Please leave a review, share with your friends, or visit our website, sportsparenthood.com.au, to connect. Catch you next week.